Hi, this is Chris Kipp, lead pastor of Renaissance Church in Richmond, Texas. Thank you for streaming or downloading this podcast today. I hope this resource blesses you. If you haven't joined us at a worship gathering or at a house church yet, we want you to come. You can find all that information and more at rin-church.org. I pray that you are encouraged today by the proclamation of God's word. Welcome today. Uh, We are going to get into some deep, wonderful scriptural doo-doo today, okay? So I'm just going to warn you on the front end. I hope you're ready. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 1. If you want to start turning there in your uh, Bible, if you have an app that you read the Bible on, that's totally cool. We also are going to have that on the screens for you in just a moment, but we are in a series called Full. We're studying the book of Colossians together, and as I was preparing for the series, this word filled and full and fullness and words like empty are all over the book, and I just felt like that's what we need to focus on together as we walk through this book of Scripture. And uh, so we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1. Before I share that with you, uh, I have told you guys before my story, my testimony, how I, I became a believer in Christ the summer before my senior year of high, of high school, which gave me about two to three years to sort of grow in my faith before getting my bottom handed to me in philosophy 1310 by Dr. Zhu at Southwest Texas State University. Because as passionate as I was about my belief in Jesus and the word of God and the unexplainable experiences that I have had with God, he was equally as passionate that I was a total and complete moron if I believed this. And I've told you about the crisis of faith, of having my faith challenged constantly in this classroom. I've told you about my friend that sat behind me, a girl from our college ministry. She would kick my chair every time that he said something derogatory about Christianity, which meant man up and raise your hand and do something about this. And so I would raise my hand in a room of 300 college students, and I would stand up and I would do my best. And most of the time, I had no clue what he had even said because I wasn't paying attention. I just got the kick, you know what I'm saying? And, uh, and I would say something basically like, I don't agree with what you just said. And I was trying so hard. And what I found is that in the midst of that season, his arguments felt so big in my faith felt really small. Honestly, my God felt small. And I want to speak to that tension that you and I feel as we live on planet Earth in America. What are the tensions that we feel where sometimes the challenges feel so big and our faith feels small and particularly our God feels small. We're going to look at a, a passage together that is the fullest uh, uh, expression of Christology in the New Testament. That word Christology the, is the study of Christ or knowledge of Christ. And in this one moment, there's this power-packed song. It's a song that was sung by the early church. And it, and it, it explains some, some big things about Jesus. So we're going to look at this together. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. Read along with me. It says, He is the image 
of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Verse 17, he is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He's also the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that he might come to have the first place in everything. For God was pleased to have, get this, all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Verse 21, once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard, This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. This is the word of the Lord. So as we're reading that passage, and you probably saw the the first, oh, you know, maybe seven verses are, are kind of laid out in a different form. And the reason is the scholars believe that this was, a, he's quoting a song or a hymn or a poem that the early church sang, which is beautiful. If you think about what we just did together, that we're singing and rehearsing theology together. We're reminding ourselves as we interact with the Holy Spirit through song. And they were singing these things about Jesus to learn them, to to get them down into their bones, a hymn of the early church. And what we see in the hymn is that this big Jesus is the one who made sense of everything for them. He made sense of everything. Last week, I talked to you about the word filled. We, we talked about the, um, the prayer of fullness as, as Paul prayed that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will. We talked about that word filled being a big, abundant, super abounding word of being filled up to the brim, to the top. Now here we have this moment where Paul says that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell bodily in Jesus. Today, the the title of my message is The Fullness of Jesus. The Fullness of Jesus. And he says these things about him, that he's the image of the invisible God, which I like that because it says, number one, God's invisible, which we'd say, yeah, like I'm, I believe in him, but I, I can't see him. I can see the effects of him, but I can't see him with my eyes. He says, yes, yes, but if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God. And then he says this about him, that he is the incarnation of God that all the fullness of God somehow dwells in the body of Jesus. He's the image and the incarnation 
of God and the big idea that he is making is that the fullness of Jesus is expressed in three dimensions. The three dimensions of the fullness of Jesus. Now that sounds really smart and I'm not that smart and I like to sound smart every now and then, but it's three dimensions of the fullness of Jesus and I wanna unpack those together. The first thing that he says is that Jesus is the source of all things. I don't know if you caught that in the hymn. Jesus is the capital S source of all things. He uses words like this, the firstborn over all creation. Now, firstborn would be, um, it's a word that would describe the priority in time, meaning he came first. So before us, Jesus. Before the world, Jesus. He was there. Says he was the beginning He's before all things, right? It's the priority in time, but it's also the supremacy in rank, that he's the highest of, of all beings. God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit is the highest. He's the source of all things. He uses this other word, creator. The creator. Now, I want to talk about that for a little bit this morning because that's a tension that we feel in our culture. If you're like uh, Casey and I, if, if you have children or grandchildren, or if you just enjoy kids' movies, you'll watch kids' movies on occasion. And there's one called The Croods, A New Age. I think I have a slide of that. Have, have y'all seen The Croods, The New Age, right? And it's a funny movie. And the whole basis of the movie is that we evolved, right? You can see sort of the progression from the, the child is kind of like uh, that sort of that that graph of evolution from the monkey to the man, right? And, and Gran is a grandma, and she still has a tail because she's somewhere in between. Maybe she's the missing link that we've all been looking for in the whole evolutionary story. I take my kids to museums. And whenever I walk into a museum and I read the plaque, it's like this thing lived, you know, five bazillion years ago. And, and everything's presented to us from an evolutionary viewpoint, and then you walk into church, and your pastor says, God created everything, and there's a tension, right? The claims feel big, and your faith feels small. I wanna talk about that together. I wanna talk about what does it mean for Jesus to be the creator, because I know that there's been this culture war that we talk about, and you know that if you believe that God's creator, then you, you have to like jettison all science, or that's kind of that, you know, it's, it's the, 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 the quote from Nacho Libre, why are you always judging me because I only believe in science? Did y'all know that? No? Okay. That's your homework this week, Walk, watch Nacho Libre, okay? ridiculous movie. But it, it's this tension. And I, I found some quotes from famous smart people, people that were evolutionists that I thought was interesting for us to consider together because there are believers that believe in a creator, that God created everything, and that he uses natural processes. Okay? And that's fine. Some believers say, baloney, he spoke it, and it happened in a 24-hour time period. That's great. It's great, okay? But these quotes, I think, help us. The first was, uh, it's uh, the book, The Grand Design, Stephen Hawking, smart guy. He, uh, you, you probably recognize him. He had the wheelchair and he has the machine that talks for him. 
And the, the, the idea of the grand design was that the cosmos spontaneously generated from nothing. That, that somehow everything just generates from nothing. George G. Simpson, who was from Harvard University, said virtually all biochemists agree that life on earth arose spontaneously from non-living matter. But the deeper we go, the more complex and the more order is found. For example, A.I. Oparin, a Soviet biochemist, he's regarded as, as the father of modern theory of chemical evolution. He said, even the simplest of these substances, talking about proteins, represent extremely complex compounds containing many thousands of atoms of carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen arranged in absolutely definite patterns, which are specific for each separate Substance. To the student of protein structure, the spontaneous formation of such an atomic arrangement in the protein molecule would seem as improbable, get this, improbable as would the accidental origin of the text of Virgil's Aeneid from scattered letter type. Wow. It's like the deeper we go into these things, the more order and complexity we find. Another, an American biologist by the name of Edwin Conklin from Princeton University, says the, prob the probability of life originating from accident is comparable to the probability of the unabridged dictionary resulting from an explosion in a printing shop. Sir Fred Hoyle, an eminent astrophysicist of Great Britain, he said, the chance that higher life forms have emerged in this way is comparable with the chance that a tornado sweeping through a junkyard might assemble a Boeing 747 from the materials therein. Isn't that crazy? Now, all of these men are way smarter than me. They're way more educated than me. They're incredibly uh, well-educated, intelligent, People, and they're all saying that this just happening by chance, by randomness, is extremely, extremely improbable. Now, you and I, we have something that perhaps science cannot show us, and it's not really designed to show us, is that we understand that we have a capital S source that comes from God. I mean, do you ever marvel at creation? Have you ever considered how much technology is just in your eyeball? That, that you have these, you know, this expanding and contracting retina that, that, that adjusts to light that's coming in that somehow takes that, that light and converts it into a signal that gets, goes into a part of your brain and your brain takes the other eye and this eye and it takes all that and it, and it puts together an image and you and I can both see the same thing and say that's red and that's blue and that's light and that's dark. See, I, I believe that if you lived in a, in a room with no windows and could not see the outside created world, that there's enough there's enough creation wonder in your own body that you should be astounded and convinced that you have a creator, a capital S source. Did you know that the earth travels around the sun at eight times the speed of a bullet fired from a gun? That's 
fast. There are more insects in one square mile of rural land than there are human beings on the entire planet. That a single human chromosome contains 20 billion bits of information, and if that were written in ordinary books, in ordinary language, it would take 4,000 volumes. And you thought your grandparents' Encyclopedia Britannica collection was large. Like, imagine 4,000 volumes in one single human chromosome. The deeper we go, the more we go, wow, how could this just happen without a creator? We marvel at creation, at the capital S source. But these people who are writing this song and singing this together, they're not thinking about microscopes and telescopes and string theory. They're thinking about what did Jesus show us in his life? Because the people that were singing this song, what they saw as the eyewitnesses of Jesus is that he demonstrated that he was the creator. That in, in Cana, when he turns water into wine, they said only a creator could do this. When a man who's born blind from birth, meaning he does not have the needed equipment in his body to see, is healed by Jesus, they say he must be creator. When, when he calms the creation chaos by a single word to the storm, They say he must be creator. When he takes the bread and the fish and multiplies it so that literally thousands upon thousands of people eat and are filled and 12 basketfuls are left over, they say he must be creator. It's true what the word says about God, the maker of all, the capital S, source. It reflects what they believed. And if you have no creator, then you have no moral obligation to a God. That sounds convenient, doesn't it? If you have no creator, then all religious belief is a human creation. Like we, we created a creator to make sense of what we don't understand if there's no creator. And if there's no creator, then all religions are human creations and nothing is more right than another. And you can put them on or take them off or mix them and match them like the latest fashion. If there's no creator, then there's no standard bearer. And all standards are subject to change. As my Hindu friend told me as we were walking and we walk and talk and we kind of try to convert each other and he tells me, um, you know, you Christians, you need to change with the times. Like Hinduism, we change with the times. Because there's no standard. There's no standard bearer. If there's no creator, then to want, to want much beyond surviving a few years only to die is superfluous, pointless, and meaningless. If there's no creator and you're a random expression of atheistic evolution, then gender and sexuality are just social constructs that you don't have to pay any attention to. They're fluid. You can change them because you're not endowed with any kind of 
gender or sexuality. And if there's no creator, then there's no intrinsic value to a human life. And all value and self-worth is determined by either comparison or contribution. And if you don't measure up and you don't contribute, you're expendable. It is survival of the fittest. And my friends, that's a really, really dangerous idea. The truth is in Jesus, the capital S source before all things, maker of all things, the one through whom all things were created by him and for him. The second thing, the second dimension of of the fullness of Jesus is that Jesus is the sustainer of all things. In verse 17, it says that by him, all things hold together. Like literally the, the whole thing holds together on Jesus. Now, the deist believes that God created everything and it says, good luck, guys. See you later. But the first followers of Jesus understood that he was actively present in all of creation. Hebrews 1.3 says the same thing. It says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory in the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. That he's here now. And he's holding all the matter and atoms and all the stuff that we don't understand. He's holding it all together. He's keeping the earth in orbit. He keeps the sun shining, right? If he would remove himself, then all things would unravel, which is, by the way, the apocalyptic picture, prophetic picture of the end of days that we see throughout scripture when everything begins to unravel. He's the one holding all things Together. This corrects this idea that the, the universe or Mother Earth are the sustainers of all things because the word tells us that Jesus is the sustainer of all things. It also means that neither science, government, your favorite political party, technology, medicine, nor any human enterprise is able to sustain all things. Did you hear that? Nothing, none of those things are able to sustain all things. But rather, these are merely God's fingerprints within humanity. And when those things are held in right understanding in Christ, they become immense blessings to humanity. The comfort is that Jesus is the sustainer. And that's good news because there's someone higher and who's above all human enterprise, so that when human enterprise fails and falters, there's someone higher that you can turn to and look to and hope in and beseech and pray to and cling to. It's the good news. He's the sustainer of all things. It means that you can love and care for creation and still be free from a neo-religious commitment to environmentalism. 
It means that you can care deeply about a government and not fall prey to naive utopian rhetoric. You can have a preferred political party without conflating the kingdom of God with the kingdom of men. You can look to science and technology and medicine as incredible discoveries in the genius of God and creation without attempting to live apart from God or autonomous from God. And he's not just sustaining the whole world, which that's amazing. But he goes further, and the song says that he's the head of all things for the church, that he's the sustainer of the church. Now, I did a little research this week because I'm nerdy, and that's what I do, and uh, I just did some research on the head. Like, what is it, you know, so if Pastor Chris was up here, and please don't do this, but if you were to sever my head from my body, my body would stop working, right? Yeah, I mean, that's common sense, So why is that? Well, I I did some research. It says the human brain weighs about three pounds. So if you're looking to lose a few pounds, there's there's a way, okay? um, It's 2% of your body weight, which I'm doing the math, and I don't know if that's true. Um, It consumes as much as 25% of our body's oxygen. It burns 20% of your total calories. So if you're looking to burn a few extra calories this summer, swimsuit weather, you're like, you know what? I'm going to think a lot, okay? 20% of your total calories each day. It runs on about 12 watts of power. That's interesting. It, this is, this is cool. It has 400 miles, 400 miles of capillaries, that's a lot of miles. 86 billion microscopic neurons in constant synaptic communication, making 10 quadrillion calculations every second. That's a lot of zeros, right? That's more than our, our, our federal deficit right now, okay? Each neuron is like a tiny branching tree whose limbs reach out and touch other neurons, making between 5,000 and 10,000 connections with other neurons, which, get this, which is more than 500 trillion connections performing a dazzling array of complex mental processes every second, Did you know that that's what's happening between your ears right now? That's crazy. And Jesus is like that. That's the point. Which means that we can sing a song that says, I'm not hoping, I'm not wishing, I'm praying to a God who listens that he's a God who's able to communicate with the house church in China and the church meeting under a tree in Africa and the mega church in America and, and the underground movement of house churches in Cuba. And he can also communicate to us in this room and to you Would you pray on your commute to work secretly and nobody knows that he sees all of it and is able to process everything that's happening? He's the head sustaining the church, the global church, us in the room as the church, you 
as a member of his church, sustaining all things. And as we read and consider uh, the fullness of Jesus as the source and sustainer, if you were to text me right now, I think you would text me something like this. Um, I, I think it would be that, right? Like, wow, that's a lot. That's a lot of information. Like, mind blown. He's the source and sustainer. But wait, there's more. The third dimension, Jesus is the Savior for all people, capital S, Savior for all people. This is where Paul lands it for them. It's what we read. Through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross, and then he turns it on them. Once you, in Texas, we would say y'all, because that's a plural you. Once y'all were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions, but now he's reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy and faultless and blameless before him. That word reconcile, you probably know what it means. It means to bring back to a former state of harmony. It's to restore a relationship. It's, it's to make friendly again. And he says, look, you, y'all, you were alienated. You were hostile in your minds. It was being expressed in evil actions. You and God were not on good terms. You were not on good terms. And somehow, <laughs> he is able to present us holy, faultless, and blameless. It's, uh, you know, it's the source, the capital S source, creates the heavens and the earth, and he creates human beings in his image, and we rebel, and we defy, and disobey, and disrespect, and disregard, and otherwise just ignore God for most of our lives. And somehow, he steps in, is like, I'll take care of that for you. And how does he do that? <laughs> he reconciles us. I mean, think about those three words, holy, faultless, and blameless. How many of you would describe yourself that way? Your first time to house church, and they say, tell us about you. You're like, well, my name's Jim. This is my wife, Nancy. We have two kids. We enjoy snow skiing. Oh, and we're holy, faultless, and blameless, Right? If you're single and you have an online dating profile, like, is that on your profile? <laughs> Walks on the beach, you know, poetry, smell of, of cedar. Oh, and I'm holy, faultless, and blames. No, like nobody says that about themselves because when we look at ourselves and we look at each other, we're like, I'm not so sure I'm seeing the holy, the faultless, the blameless. Amen? And he says, I'm able to, present you. I'm able to present you as holy, faultless, and blameless. Through what? Through domination? Sharia law? Is it perhaps um, through jihad or meditation and the shedding of desires? Is it through your good works outweighing your bad works? Good karma? kosher law-keeping, morality, 
through being a nice person who condones everything and everyone and challenges nothing? No, that's not what Paul says. So the only way this could ever be true about you is that Jesus sacrificed himself for you. It's the only way. Through the sacrifice of his own physical body, all of this turns on a cross. This means that nobody gets to save themselves. To a pluralistic world, this sounds like bad news, right? Because that's really narrow, and that's really judgmental, and that's really intolerant to say Jesus is the savior for all people, right? That's really intolerant, Chris. And that's a tension that we feel in our world. It's the claim that there are multiple ways to God. And as long as you're a good person and sincere about what you believe, you're gonna be just fine. But the truth that we see in the scripture is not that there were many ways, but is that there was actually no way There was not a way. You you couldn't get there with whatever your favorite flavor of spirituality is or isn't, right? There was no possible way to get there until Jesus makes a way through his body sacrificed on a cross for you and for me. So it sounds like bad news until you realize there was no single way to to be reconciled back to the source and sustainer of all things until Jesus made a way. And then all of a sudden, what sounds like bad news to a pluralistic culture becomes good news because there is a way. There is a way. And it's not dependent upon you. He says, if you believe, if you're not shifted away from hope in the gospel, if you will trust, if you will believe in Jesus, there's a way. So, Jesus is the source of all things, the sustainer of all things, and the savior for all people. And here's where I think we need to land today and we need to close here is that the stuff that you face in life feels really big. Like me in that philosophy class, I had really big questions and really big doubts. Some of you have some really big hurts in your life. You might have some big challenges going on. You might have some big issues that you're facing, some big crises that are like right there in your face staring at you. You might have some big struggles. You might have some big sins that you're dealing with. And in the midst of my big questions, in my small faith, God actually used a prophet, a man who had a prophetic gift. And that man said to me, he said, God is big enough for your questions. He didn't know what was going on inside of me. He says to me, God is big enough for your questions. You have thought that you have to answer all those things on your own, and then once you reconcile that, then you can come to God. But God says, bring your questions to me. 
And it was that simple word, he's big enough, that turned everything for me as a young man. And when it happened for me, Jesus became the key to unlock everything, that he was big enough for whatever you're facing. When your faith feels small and your God feels small and the challenges feel big, I want you to know from the word of God that you have a big, massive savior in Jesus. And he's big enough for you. Amen? So, behold the Lord your God. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance Church Sermon Podcast. To contact us or find out more information, visit rin-church.org.